Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. What you are about to listen to is a podcast we made from a webinar that we held today, February 17th, 2022. During the webinar, we showed two very short videos produced by B'Tselem, the Israeli Human Rights Organization. The videos contain interviews with Palestinians in the West Bank. The interviews are in Arabic and the videos have English subtitles. Because you are listening to this program and not watching it, we cut the videos out of the podcast, but strongly recommend that you go to our website, www.fmep.org, look up this program and watch the videos. They are excellent. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Welcome. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very happy to welcome our audience today to this webinar, Apartheid and Dispossession, Views from the West Bank. This event is co-sponsored with B'Tselem, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories. I note that B'Tselem is also a partner and grantee of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and we're very proud to be holding this event with them today. Some housekeeping first. Um, if you have uh, questions, you should put them in the Q&A box. Um, don't put them in the chat box because I will not be monitoring the chat box, but we do welcome your questions, so put them in the Q&A box and I will try to use as many of them as I can. Um, this is being recorded and it's on Facebook. So heads up, you're being recorded, everybody. Um, and we have enabled captions for people who prefer or need to use uh, the captions. Uh, so uh, with that, I just want to, let's see, anything else on the housekeeping? No, so just to dig right into this. Um, and I wanna just briefly kind of give a lay of the land. So obviously, um, the situation in the West Bank is very much on, on the, the, the news screens today, a lot happening. Um, generally, the media picks up when something very sort of big, momentous, something that catches their eye happens. But the fact is Palestinians face a matrix of mechanisms, and it's an ever-expanding matrix of mechanisms that are driven by settlers and by the government of Israel that are, are literally designed to remove them from their land in the West Bank, but also in Gaza Strip, in East Jerusalem, and as we're seeing these days, um, inside the Green Line in the Negev and Nakab. Um, so today we're focusing on the West Bank and we're gonna actually be zooming in on area C of the West Bank, where Palestinian communities live in literally an ever-present threat of dispossession at the hands of the Israeli government, its security forces, its courts, and its private citizens. Um, today's discussion will feature two Palestinians from Nasafar Yetta in the South, South Hebron Hills, which is a region in Area C where the residents are under heightened threats and regular attacks. We'll also feature video interviews of other Palestinians living under threat in the same area. And importantly, this area in the South Hebron Hills is illustrative of what's happening across the West Bank, of how settlers in the Israeli government are working hand in hand to threaten Palestinians' homes, dispossess them of their land, and undermine their livelihoods and communities. So very briefly, we're gonna get into this. I want to introduce our esteemed panel that is joining us today. And these are all people who are very, very busy on the ground every day. And I'm grateful and honored they've taken the time to be with us today. So first we have Basil Al-Adra. Basil is an activist, journalist, and photographer from the village of Atawani. 
And you can follow him on Twitter. Um, my colleague will put his Twitter handle into the chat box. He is very active on Twitter and also as a journalist, I encourage people to read him and follow him. Um, second, we have Eid, who is a photographer and activist from Masafarieta in the South Hebron Hills. And third, we are joined with two colleagues from B'Tselem, Sarit Mikhaeli, who is B'Tselem's International Advocacy Officer, and Eyal Haruven, who is a researcher whose new report is entitled State Business, Israel's Misappropriation of Land in the West Bank Through Settler Violence. Um, and you can find all of their bios on our website, the long bios. So before I get started, I, I do wanna take a moment to acknowledge um, terrible events that took place not long ago in one of the villages in the South Hebron Hills, and this is Eid's village, um, Omul Khair, um, in which one of the village elders who was a well-known and, and greatly respected activist all over the South Hebron Hills was fatally injured while protesting against Israeli harassment aimed at his village. Um, so I, I want to send condolences from myself and from the foundation um, to, to eat into the, the, all the residents of the village and, and the whole community of activists, because this was really, I think, just devastating. Um, so with that as the backdrop, Eid, to, first, to help frame the discussion today, could you start out by briefly um, laying out your community, the, the history of your community? Who are you? Where did you come from? How long have you been there? How long have you been in this location? And, and, and to the extent that you can, you know, how has the, the situation of your community evolved over time from when it was first established to, you know, with the, the growth of settlements and, and Area C politics? Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for everyone who is uh, <clears throat> joining us. Uh, my community came from, uh, from the Negev in 1948 as refugees. Uh, uh, Jalin tribe were coming to the West Bank, and then <clears throat> my family is part of it, and then we stay in South Hebron Hills until the 62, and then the <clears throat> After that, the Israeli government, you know, take over the West Bank as we know in 1967. And then we've been surrounded with settlements since 80s until today in, in Masafriyatta, especially in Omar Khair village. We were located by Israeli settlement side by side and they take more lands from the village which owned for us. And then after that, you know, the, the harassment getting always uh, more and more with years against my family, against the land, against the shepherds, against everybody who's trying to make living in the, in which called Area C. Uh, I am Eid uh, Suleiman Hedalin. I am an artist who live and born in Omar Khair village uh, since 80s. I am uh, grow up. I mean, my, my childhood and everybody, you know, most of the youngsters in South Hills is growing up with, uh, <laughs> with this mixable, you know, um, type of settlers and military, you know, coming every time to invade the villages and search them and, you know, affected people, demolishing their homes, confiscating their lands. We all grow up with this, I mean, as, um, as a young people who witness the, this history, along this, I mean, 30 years of, uh, of settling 
in the in South Hebron Hills, especially in Masafariyata. And uh, as a lack of that, any village is not allowed to have electricity or infrastructure in general. That's uh, a really need for every village in Masafariyata, but it's forbidden by the Israeli government because uh, they ask you a lot of uh, papers and the plans then, if you approve them, they reject them in the end of the day in the court. And that's, you know, cause the people a lot to pay, even though they arresting them and they demolishing their homes every time. Otherwise, they arresting the people, they investigating the people, they take them to the jail for nothing, and they they chasing the shepherds in the fields nowadays. And there is no more space for shepherds nowadays in uh, in Masafriata because Israel control thousands of donums of land and give it to the settler. I mean, one settler compared with 100 Palestinians. I mean, this is really very, um, very hard to the Palestinian community in Masafariyata in Area C. And that's caused us a lot as uh, communities who live under these circumstances, like forbidden from uh, infrastructures, forbidden from you know, paved road, forbidden for building homes in safety, for, I mean, everything is forbidden for, for Masafriyata communities, and Umar Khair is one of them. This has happened all over this, I mean, uh, uh, generations. And Israel never give a plan to make change or to make the people, you know, uh, to give the people some hope to, you know, to make change. Even though we saw uh, growth in the settlements, we saw development in the settlements, but the community, the Palestinian communities, beside they not allowed and forbidden from anything. This is the, the major, I mean, uh, thing which we talk about it in Safariyata. Thank you, and I think that's a really, a really powerful way to start this off. One thing that you you said that I wanted to emphasize for people to understand is the community that you're talking about is a community that started out as refugees from inside 48. Um, and, you know, it, it's striking to me when I, I, I listen to you thinking that effectively it, it's almost an effort to take a refugee community and making it refugees again, um, which is just just painful. Um, Basil, I want to turn to you. Your, your community, Tuanne, has been in the news a lot. Um, there have been raids by settlers. There was just recently a raid by the IDF. So gonna, I think I'll ask you about that in a bit. But before we get into all of that, can you also briefly introduce your village to our audience? You know, how many people live there? Where did they come from? What is the source of their livelihoods? Um, what is their relationship geographically and in terms of interaction to the Israeli settlements in the area? Uh, yes, so thank you. Uh, so my name is Basil Adra from Tuani village. <clears throat> Uh, I am. I, I should be like uh, the neighbor of Eid, but uh, in between us, since the 80s, there is uh, between, I mean, two, uh, both of our communities, there's two settlements. They were established there. And part of the, 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 the strategy how to build settlements and outposts is to cut the connections between also the Palestinian communities, not just stealing their land and build settlements, but also to cut off the connections between those uh, Palestinian communities. I come from Tuani village. Tuani is a bit different than uh, Eid uh, community in Omar Khair. Uh, after 10 years of struggle in, in my community, Tuani, for example, 
we managed uh, to get a structural uh, plan and we call it a master plan for our homes and to get uh, life requirements like electricity and water and paving roads and to build school this came like to my community and we went in it uh, after long long years of uh, resisting and nonviolent resistance uh, of against the occupation and its own policies uh, which is I wish and I fight with together with Eid and other friends and other communities and other people here in Masafriyatta to gain this uh, win uh, to all the communities. Despite of the, the situations that Eid were explaining, uh, I, I said this about my community in 20 uh, because this small victories uh, that we are making of a structural plan or removing the wall in 2006 from the in front of the from the in front of the village that were built by the Israeli army is still giving us some hope as a as activists as people who's fighting uh, against the, the, the occupation we are like 300 about 300 people here living uh, next to us there's a settlement called Ma'on and um, beside it there's an outpost called Khavas uh, uh, Ma'on uh, and like the, the, the resource of the people here in the life should be like the farming, farming the land but within the policy of the occupation by giving the settlers uh, I mean not just my community money, all my and all that is in Masriyata, originally that were farmers, we have sheep and we plant the land and we uh, we work in agriculture in general. But within these policies, uh, by building settlements and expansion of the settlements and building uh, outposts and what started to happen uh, last year specifically by giving the settlers uh, what is called state land, which is was stealing uh, from us in the beginning of the 80s as Palestinians. And it goes from the state to the settlers to build farms and to allow the settlers uh, graze there, there without the Palestinians. The uh, Palestinians are not allowed there, are not allowed to, bl to blow that land. So, for example, in Masafiriyata, all the policies of the occupation by preventing people having water and uh, destroying roads uh, and taking their like agricultural land, give it to the settlers. In, to, in the year of 2000, where like about 100,000 sheep uh, as a resource of life for the communities in Masafiriyata for those families. And within all these policies by, by the past 20 years, now there is like 15,000 uh, sheep. So the, the occupation policy here uh, uh, directly and indirectly succeeded by shifting people from being farmers to be uh, mostly workers in the in the Israeli settlements and the Israel and in Israel 48 by building and being workers uh, instead of being like independent uh, in their life and uh, having their uh, independent income uh, they're just uh, workers for the occupation and they always need the occupation for their life so this is like another kind of uh, policy and suffering that the, the people are uh, under it here thank you that's uh, really again a really powerful introduction to today's conversation um thank you for that sarit i, I want to come to you you know, the lives that we've mentioned the term area c a bunch of times i have and i haven't step, stepped back to define it and I want you to talk about this. The lives of Palestinians in the South Hebron Hills are defined in almost every single aspect by the fact that their communities are located in what is known as Area C, which is a territorial area defined under the Oslo Accords. 
Can you briefly explain what Area C is and how Israel's approach to Area C and its Palestinian residents has actually evolved in the decades since Oslo was signed? And, and I also just want to add one little factoid here because both Eid and Basil talked about building permits and houses, permission to build. And today, an activist online, Itai Epstein, shared data from, from Kogat. This is from the Israeli authorities, which says that in the last five years in Area C, um, Palestinians were granted a total for five years of 33 building permits, while for Palestine, while during the same period, for settlers, there were 16,500 building permits granted. Talk about that. So this is, I think, in response to a parliamentary question submitted by MK Mosiraz. And, um, and this is in line with every single thing we know about um, the policies of the Israeli civil administration. So this is an, uh, you know, kind of like if you need a factoid to put the entire picture in place. This is the, the one and the fact that it came out today is just completely symbolic. Um, Area C is actually 60% of the West Bank, and but it's not a geographical area in a way. It's a political division, right? It's not some sort of organic uh, place that has a history and it has developed in, in some ways. The, the location of Area C was drawn as part of the interim agreement signed between Israel and the PLO in order to um, kind of like find or, or, or locate places where Israel has established its settlement so that in this kind of like is then a, 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 a defined process of a gradual uh, changing of the control within the West Bank, this is going to be the last um, area to be discussed in the final state of solution of the Oslo Accords, which was meant to happen in 1999, right? So this was a, like a, not a, a geographic, not a demographic, but a political this, this division, very temporary, right? It was only meant to last five years. And it was initially already based on the Israeli policy of establishing settlements that was in itself designed specifically with the expressed view of uh, uh, fragmenting the West Bank and preventing any possibility of uh, any kind of territorial compromise or, or Palestinian state, etc. So the Israeli initial decisions about where to place the settlements played, played a role in the decision of what would become Area C, which under Oslo then was placed under full Israeli responsibility, both security and civilian matters. Now, I should also come in and say for you know, the record that we actually view this div uh, div uh, division as very uh, technical and in fact, not a realistic division because Israeli policies in Area C affect all Palestinians living throughout the West Bank. But also, uh, um, I think because, you know, when, you th when you're talking about um, uh, Area C, um, you forget for a moment that the Palestinians do not have any control over their lives and over who makes decisions about their lives and their future, even in areas A and B, right? The Palestinian Authority that ostensibly controls uh, all matters in area A and civilian matters in area B is in itself, um, you know, a kind of a, primarily a subcontractor of Israel in terms of applying the occupation. It does not actually have any capacity to make decisions that influence the future of Palestinians. But if we turn back again to the Oslo Accords, so Israel basically has um, all full control over anything that happens in Area C in terms of the way uh, uh, planning is uh, des designed, uh, uh, 
uh, houses are uh, given uh, permits and I'm sure it will not come as a massive surprise that Israel uses this control, this total control, right? There are no, there are zero Palestinians represented in the planning uh, institutions, right? In the planning committees of uh, the civil administration. It's a shocking uh, issue and we're only kind of not daily shocked by it because we're so used to the, the reality of Palestinians not being represented in anybody that makes decisions over their future. So the civil administration makes decisions about all planning throughout the West Bank. It has a, a provided a generous a planning and permit regime for the settlements, right? They're constantly expanding both settlements that are legal under the Israeli system and also settlements that are illegal under the Israeli system, and we'll hear about all of these outposts that supposedly are illegal, while at the same time the Israeli civil administration utilizes its full control to restrict virtually uh, uh, completely any Palestinian uh, development in Area C. And this is why communities like uh, Eid's community, actually Tuani is one of the few examples of a community that is actually recognized by the Israeli authorities, uh, simply cannot build legally, so everything they build is illegal and is also demolished, right? And is not, uh, uh, you know, allowed to uh, continue to, to exist. And I think if you look at the broad long-term picture, and this, I'll, I'll end with this, is you've seen um, during the 90s, a slight, you know, when there was a move towards, um, or extensive move towards a full, uh, a final status agreement, I think there was already then, um, a move within the Israeli uh, authorities of taking over this whole uh, um, planning system. So it wasn't kind of like this innocent process, but certainly since uh, the, the beginning of the previous decade and even more so since about 2015 and, and certainly in growing numbers in the last few years, uh, the civil administration is constantly demolishing and confiscating uh, the homes uh, and the, the the properties and the uh, lifestyle uh, sorry the the life livelihood structures of Palestinians and uh, at the same time obviously uh, uh, pressuring them there is the the kind of a dynamic an internal dynamic within Israel that the civil administration is uh, deeply committed to this uh, demolition, this policy of demolition, but there is also a pressure from the Israeli right and the Israeli settlement enterprise to kind of like make it do its job even more so, including a lot of money that is flowing now into monitoring by settlers of Palestinians of this so-called illegal infractions, illegal uh, construction that the, the Palestinians are perpetrating allegedly. Thanks. And, and when we talk about illegal construction, we need to go back, I think, to that, that factoid of the day, which basically makes clear that under Israeli authority, it is virtually impossible for Palestinians to build, even on land Israel recognizes as private Palestinian land, it is virtually impossible for them to build legally. Um, I, I want to get in now to sort of the situation, the day-to-day -day situation on the ground. And I want to preface this set of questions. My, my colleague is going to put a, um, a link into the chat. There was a, a recent article, it was an interview with a settler named Yochai Damri, who is the chairman of the Mount Hebron Regional Council, which is the settler council for the area. And, and in the words of the journalist, this, this guy is um, arguably the most powerful person in that area with the possible exception of IDF commanders. 
And it says in the article, he, he espouses an ideology according to which all Palestinians living on what he perceives as Jewish land are implicitly illegal, illegitimate trespassers. And in a section where he's speaking about residents of the South Hebron Hills, he said, and I'm quoting, they must not only have their homes demolished, but also be placed in prison. They are small communities that must be taken apart. It's very clear, you know, the intent and the policy there. So let's, Basil, I want to come back to you. As I mentioned in my earlier question, we didn't get on it, touch on it yet, really. Um, your village was raided uh, this week by IDF forces, which offers us an opportunity to talk about these raids. You know, what are these raids about? What was this raid about? What are pre the previous raids that that Tuani and other villages in the area? And you know, what is the legal pretext? from Israel behind such raids. Um, how do these actions by the IDF fit into the settler targeting of your community and its neighbors? And, and again, here I would quote that same settler leader when talking specifically about your village, he said that the residents of your village should have their homes demolished and be forced out. And he said, those who have stolen must sit behind bars and return what they stole. Speaking of your entire village. Uh, yeah, thank you again. Uh, actually, the raid that happened uh, before two nights in my village where uh, the army came uh, inside the community uh, as usual. And to be honest, in, in since 2021, uh, like since the beginning of the of the last year until uh, this two months of this year, uh, we had at, le at least ten times the army raiding uh, my community, my specific like twenty village uh, during the night. <clears throat> Sometimes it were like uh, it seems that they just come to show presence. Uh, like before two weeks, uh, I wake up uh because my 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 father called me and said there's soldiers like uh, near our home. Uh, I, I walk. I walked. Uh, I walked up outside the home. They just walk away toward the school. They were lighting inside the school. They they spent like fifteen minutes lighting inside. Uh, then they went to the mosque of the community above it and around and then around some homes and they went back inside Khabat Mount. <clears throat> and before tonight they came here. Uh, I got also a call from a resident that uh, he said. And uh, the, the army is raiding their home uh, and searching inside it. So I went there outside. There was like around six vehicles uh, of uh, Israeli soldiers uh, in, in between olive trees and uh, inside the home and outside. Then they went out of that home uh, walking toward us. <coughs> uh, I was filming with another Israeli left wing activist uh, what, what was happening. They just were masked, and uh, for me it was uh, uh, really dangerous. We were like in in a darkness uh, uh, place, and with like uh, at least twenty soldiers, they start beating us. Uh, they took the camera. They tried to very hard to take my phone, and they were beating me up in my stomach and my head, and hit me to the jeep. Uh, but I managed to to keep my phone and to run away. So I I had short video of what what was happening and, and put it on, on face and on Twitter. 
So what happened after they just go arrested a 969 years old man and a young uh, young guy. Uh, they were like uh, kept kept them in the army military base until the morning. They were taken to the police station. <clears throat> and what happened there? They told them that the settler claimed that they beat this settler before six months. Uh, this is like another way how how they are using it as a techniques. When we as a Palestinians go claim, even with our evidence and our proofs uh, against settlers' attacks that always happening uh, against us, even like a pogroms, like last year were taking place in my community, Twani, and the community of Mufagara specifically, and other communities across West Bank. Uh, it's like over the 90% of Palestinians uh, doing complaints in the police stations uh, they will be closed and no one will be jailed from the Israeli settlers. Uh, in the opposite side, when settlers like uh, give complaints against us, uh, they shouldn't show any evidence and, and any proof. Uh, directly, the army will arrest us or from the field or they would come during the night as what happened. Uh, it ended like uh, the other day, they were just like uh, in the police station for a few hours and they let them uh, go back and go back like uh, home but for our home specifically there was a raided by the Israeli uh, secret intelligence before three weeks threatening on the people to not do any demonstration and telling us that my uh, our community is doing problems uh, and always like when something happened specifically they were worried that we do a demonstration after they killed the Hajj Suleiman the icon of our resistance uh, in the South Hebron Hills. So uh, Shabak, which is the Israeli general uh, secret intelligence, came to uh, the Raid community and to our community here in Twani and threatened on us. After they left and, and do their threat, uh, happened two raids in the night. This one, that they, uh, the guys got arrested. And the other one, we, we, we think that it's just for showing presence and showing power that they are here and they can do whatever they want. Uh, yeah, on the other hand, uh, for example, me, I got I got attacked by a settler in 2019. I have video, I have photo very clear uh, of a settler with his face uh, catching his dog and let, it, let his dog bite my hand. <coughs> uh, I did a complaint, but this file were closed in the police, uh, in the Israeli police. <coughs> Thank you. Um... Ida, I, I want to ask you also about settlers and settler violence and, and specifically about the connection between settlers and the IDF, um, you know, both in, in terms of what we've seen on video so many times, you know, the IDF passive support, standing by idly and doing nothing or even seeming to protect settlers while they are engaged in violence against Palestinians, or even what appears to be the IDF as an active tool sometimes of the Israeli government in support of settlers and settler attacks on Palestinians and in support of policies that are explicitly designed to dispossess Palestinians. So the, the settler IDF connection. Yeah, it's always uh, clear for everybody uh, the cooperation between the settlers and the IDF long these years. And uh, we saw that on the field always. It's never been that the settlers, uh, the, the soldiers come to stop settlers, uh, even though they go to beat the Palestinians who've been attacked by settlers. We always saw that, even though the police, it's the most worst. I mean, the police, 
supposed to be the, the, the law inform, enforcement in the field. We saw it. We saw the police officers going with the settlers, you know, witnessing and stories more than coming to hear the Palestinian stories. Every attack happened in the field. You saw the police officers and the army came, managers uh, and, uh, you know, lieutenants and, you know, uh, generals in high, in high degrees. They didn't come to hear from the Palestinians. First of all, they go with the settlers, standing aside and talking with them very much. And then not come to hear from the Palestinians. They come to arrest Palestinians. This is a problem. I mean, the cooperation between the, the settlers and the IDF is, is getting more and more. We saw the IDF like a, a garden company for the settlers in the, in the region of uh, Area C. In, in, in terms of the army supposed to guard the borders of the state, the, the army used by the settlers as a security company which supposed to guard the settlers always. Any settler, you know, grazing his sheep in the mountain, he, he's supposed to have two military vehicles standing with him all the day to protect him. That's insane. This is a lot of power, uh, paying power by the Israeli military <laughs> just to support and, you know, uh, protect the settlers. Even though that, I mean, we saw a lot of demolitions happened against the Palestinian communities. And never we saw it happen against, you know, some uh, settlers like in illegal outposts. It's never happened. And the IDF do it for the Palestinian people. Anytime the IDF came to any Palestinian community, they came with aggression, with beating the people, even though they didn't want to hear the people if they want to talk to them, I mean, generally or yani, gently. They never talk to them gently. Always, if the settlers complain and call the IDF, the IDF go and search all the communities about just to find one sheep, which maybe the settler lost it by himself. And then you saw the settler, the, the old brigade of South Hebron Hills is closing all the uh, communities in Masafariyata and start searching with settlers. It's really, uh, in the last 10 years, we saw a big cooperation with settlers and the military, which increased very much <laughs> against the Palestinian community. And even though, which increase more, the army getting more uh, radical and uh, extreme more than 20 years ago, their soldiers, you can't talk to them. Uh, today we saw very young soldiers uh, joining in the military service. And some of them as settlers came from a settler house or a settler community. Let's make it all. I mean, it's, it's really very uh, clear that the soldiers doing the work for settlers. And this is very dangerous if it's going in this way long this years, maybe in future also. This is supposed to be uh, known by the Israeli community, known by the families who are sending their you know, uh, uh, sons and girls to serve in the, in the West Bank or in Area C in general, specifically in Area C. Those families, they're supposed to know their sons witness a lot of crimes and they can't stop that. There's many attacks happened by settlers and we saw the IDF soldiers standing and they didn't do anything to stop this kind of attacks against Palestinians. This has happened always. And this is supposed to be known by the Israeli you know, uh, community and what happening here be uh, behind the borders. 
Thank you. Um, and, and I would encourage people to, to take some time and, and Basil's Twitter feed is a great place to start um, to get a sense of what these videos are. I think for, for many years, Palestinians told the world this was happening and, and people could rationalize, well, I didn't see it, I don't know, maybe it's not true. It, I mean, the, the video evidence now is, is, is incontrovertible. It's very clear what's happening in the West Bank and that video is, is available. Um, Sarid, I, I wanna come back to you for a second. So the, I wanna talk a little bit about the word apartheid and what's happening on the ground. And apartheid is obviously a word that is in the air these days. And, and the report that B'Tselem issued a few months ago, State Business Israel's Misappropriation of Land in the West Bank Through Settler Violence, concludes with the following statement. I'm going to quote, settler attacks against Palestinians are a strategy employed by the Israeli apartheid regime, which seeks to advance and complete its misappropriation of more and more Palestinian land. As such, settler violence is a form of government policy permitted and aided by official state authorities with their active participation. So that's quite a statement. Um, can you briefly unpack what B'Tselem means when it says that settler violence is a form of government policy? And can you also articulate how this overarching policy is one that B'Tselem views as apartheid? Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the apartheid part of this uh, answer. The, um, I mean, B'Tselem's position paper on apartheid, looking at the entire region between the, the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea as one regime that obviously in, in involves different practices, uh, uh, really looks at four Israeli uh, practicing practices that aim to promote the broad organizing principle, which is the principle of Jewish supremacy. And these are the takeover of land, uh, of the entire area in different ways, citizenship, the freedom of movement, and political participation. And in this particular uh, instance, uh, this is primarily uh, an issue of uh, land takeover, right? The, um, the, um, the report we uh, issued recently really sums up how um, settler violence is not some sort of, um, you know, expression of individual criminality or something, you know, these crazy hilltop youths who are running around rampaging, which is somehow what people would want us to think. It is a, it is a strategic tool. It's an official tool that Israel uses. Israel benefits from it and promotes it. We show in the report how, um, you know, Israel does it by essentially, uh, first of all, allowing settlers to live uh, in these areas, to take over these areas, funding them, supporting them. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, um, legitimizing the physical uh, uh, violence by settlers in these outposts that uh, my colleague Yal will, will describe uh, in a moment. Now, I think it's, it's really important to remember that violence is not some kind of random uh, kind of like out, uh, um, expression of the existence of these outposts in those areas. It's part of the business model of the outposts. And um, the reason I say it is because um, very often we think of, um, when we look at these instances, we, they just seem so shocking. They seem so um, remote, removed from any kind of uh, reasonable uh, uh, situation that a lot of people find ways to, uh, to 
explain them, to deny them. Many Israelis, and, and Lara, you said this video evidence is incontrovertible. In I would agree with that. But even our prime minister has, uh, Prime Minister Bennett, has made statements that uh, minimize, that deny, that belittle the impact of settler violence. And this is across the board, the entire uh, project. So I think it's very important to remember that the way takeover happens is through coming in with a massive amount of aggressive violence that is completely unchecked by the authorities. And as you know, our, our uh, colleagues here described, in some cases assisted, literally assisted by the army and the different um, uh, parts of, of Israel's uh, security forces and physically terrorizing Palestinian communities from accessing this land. And this is not simply only happening in the Safariata. It's happening across the board throughout the, the West Bank, in the Jordan Valley, in areas uh, in the eastern Ramallah region, in many, many areas. And in fact, only I think the day before yesterday, an, another outpost was established in the Jordan Valley uh, to the northeast of a community of, uh, of herders that we're, we're uh, we work with called Khaled Makhfou. Like so, this is just the, you know happening. Um, uh, it, this is happening in a very concerted and orchestrated way. It's supported by the state in some cases, funded, and the result is that Palestinians are basically have, know very well where they're not allowed to go because the settlers have established either threats or physical violence. Um, and the, the impact is essentially that, that communities that are dependent on this kind of like ho the whole uh, and on, on herding and grazing and, uh, and finding free food and water for the herds uh, are locked into this um, kind of spiral of debt because they're not able to access free food and water. So they have to constantly sell off uh, parts of their herds in order to pay fodder merchants, right? Because they have to... to um, to uh, uh, um, supplement the, the the food that the, the herds are eating. So this is something we're hearing from our uh, uh, witnesses throughout uh, the West Bank. And this is the essential goal of these uh, herder slash agricultural outposts. It's literally to scare Palestinians away from uh, areas that the settlers then are going to take over. And in fact, Zev Hever Zambish, the architect or one of the architects of Israel's settlement project, said it quite openly that the agricultural outposts are an excellent way to take over land. They're like these space maintainers throughout the West Bank for land takeover. Thanks. Listening to you, I remember, you know, for years there have been it has been argued that the, the settlement enterprise in the West Bank has actually not been super effective because it's still not critical mass of settlers to take over the whole area. Um, and I remember being out in the West Bank with my colleague Dror Etkes from Karim Levod at one point and him pointing to these, these farms, these agricultural settlements as an extraordinarily effective way for a tiny number of settlers to take over a huge amount of land. Um, I, I want to actually take a, a I'm sorry, do you want to... No, I was just going to say, all you need is a herd of cows or goats, a couple of shacks, and immediately the soldiers will come, electricity will arrive, uh, a road will be built, uh, and right. all of this you can also then utilize in order to like build a little business. Uh, you bring some uh, wayward youth from various places inside Israel and you get subsidies for, for maintaining them and you'll patrol the area. You get state funding for various activities to, you know, to, to spy on your Palestinian neighbors. 
So, so on that note, I want to actually take a break from this conversation. We have a couple of short videos from B'Tselem, which are testimonies uh, from Palestinians on the ground uh, living in proximity to these, these farms. So I think my colleague, Sarah Anna, is going to run. So to get back into the discussion, um, I want to come to Eyal, uh, who's been very patient. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, the, the recent B'Tselem report uh, includes five case studies, one of which focuses on the illegal outpost. And when we say illegal, we mean illegal even under Israeli law. All settlements are illegal under international law. Even Israeli law says that the outposts, and this one is Havat Ma'on, which we just saw in one of the videos, Ma'on Farm, is illegal. Um, and it's an outpost which the Israeli government has allowed to remain in place and has helped solidify in place despite being illegal and despite being a source of daily threats to Palestinians in the area, as we've just heard, including Eden Basil's villages. So in the recent report you wrote, and I'm going to quote, and I'm gonna ask you to comment on this. You wrote, from the very inception of Havat Ma'on, settlers living there used violence to drive local Palestinians away from the pasture land and farmland they had used for generations. In the past few months, these two outposts have also begun, begun setting up so-called farms. The violence, which continues to this day, consists of beating, including with sticks, axes, and clubs, stone throwing, riding horses or ATVs to scare and scatter flocks, setting assault dogs on shepherds and sheep, setting fire to fields and cutting down trees. That's the quote. So can you unpack for us briefly how outposts like Havat Ma'on and the terrorism that emanates from them are supported by the state of Israel, including literally supported financially by the state of Israel? And can you talk about how illegal outposts like these and the violence in which they engage actually serve the broader Israeli goal of pushing Palestinians off their lands in these areas? Yes, thank you. First of all, settler violence is part of the DNA of the settlement movement since its beginning. And it's been documented for decades by Israeli, Palestinians, and international human rights. When we are speaking about Chavat Mohon, and we are speaking about its illegality, all the buildings in Chavat Mohon were built without any permits. And the outpost is standing there for 25 years, and nothing has been done about these illegal buildings. Whereas if you are speaking about the nearby Palestinian villages, if anyone would buy building materials, the next day the civil administration would come and confiscate it. And if anyone will dare to build anything, it will be demolished the day after. All these terrorist acts, the violence acts, it's not only threats, are made on mostly in broad daylight, when all the area is monitored by the army. Everything, almost everything is documented and you can see the dozens, if not hundreds of videos that are documenting these violent acts. In most of the acts, soldiers are standing nearby and doing nothing, standing idly by. And even when the police is coming, the police doesn't do anything about it. If any Palestinian dares to go and complain to the police, most likely the police will interrogate him as a suspect. And not only that, all these outposts are being uh, subsidized by the Israeli ministries from the Ministry of Agriculture that gives subsidies to agricultural, agricultural initiatives from the settlements division 
that is supported, financed by the Israeli government that finances any kind of economic initiatives in the outpost all over the West Bank. So the Ministry of Welfare that gives support to any kind of educational systems for the hilltop youth, from the Ministry of Welfare, from the Ministry of Education, from the Ministry of Defense, even from the chief rabbinate that gives them a kosher certificates for food that they are selling. And it's been done for decades. To all these outputs all over the West Bank. Chavat Maon is a prototype for the agricultural farm that we have seen in the last five years that they are being built all over the West Bank. These agricultural farms already control, according to Amana, twice as much as the built up area in all the settlements. It's about 200,000 dunams. I mean, to, sorry, to see Clark, can you explain who Amana is, please? Amana is one of the, the most important and the most effective settlers movement that is well connected with the Israeli government and actually sometimes manipulate the government and sometimes even sets the strategy for this uh, outpost. And in the five years, they found that the most effective and the fastest way to grab land all over the West Bank by just putting some shepherds with a few dozens of uh, sheep or cows, few hilltop juveniles, and you can control a uh, thousand of dunams. And if they managed in five years and they are still building new agricultural farms all over the West Bank, they get already controlled twice as much as the built up area in the West Bank. And you can think within a few, the next few years, how much land they can control. And all this settlers' violence is being to tolerated by the Israeli government and being granted immunity by the Israeli government and all its bodies. The army is there, doesn't do anything, even though the soldiers have all the authority and the power to arrest settlers who are active in violence. The police is doing nothing. The Ministry of Defense doesn't do nothing. The Israeli court doesn't do nothing. The government doesn't do nothing, as Sarit says. And trying to belittle this phenomenon of settler violence. Thank you very much. And I would say for people who want to look more into, the, when, when, when you hear things like the, the, the settlers are not held to account, the cases are closed, um, I, I want to make sure people know that this is, this is data. There's data on this from Israeli authorities that validate the analysis that virtually all cases are either not investigated or are closed without any any sort of indictment or uh, or trial, um, and that data can be found from B'Tselem and Yeshdin. Um, it's 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 breaking the silence. It's all out there. Um, Ida, I want to come back to you and ask you to talk about the relationship between again the the Israeli settlers and soldiers and your village and and to you know, we're talking about these farms right now in particular in your area how you've seen that the, in light of your own experience and that of your village, um, how has that developed? And, and, and to the extent that right now the world is starting to wake up more to the use of the word apartheid, um, can you comment on, on how you feel, how that, how that framing, whether it makes sense to you and what, if it does make sense to you, what, what you think it adds to people's understanding? of the, the dilemma of being a Palestinian living under all of these different mechanisms of dispossession. 
Yeah, I mean, thank you. Uh, I mean, the situation is getting worse since 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, we have a lot of difficulties. We have a lot of harassment. We have a lot of land confiscations and so on and so on. The same thing happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But nowadays, when we compare the violence, when we compare the harassment and the aggression from, the, from this, I mean, uh, three parts, the settlers, the IDF, and the police against the Palestinian people who live in Area C, who live in their own land, in own villages, we saw it more aggression. The Palestinian simple person or simple farmer, he didn't see the future is bright or there's a light in the end of the tunnel. It's, I mean, people just get uh, uh, frustrated. People is very tired. And the, uh, uh, I mean, the people is just say, we just, we barely surviving nowadays in this life, which very hard from different <laughs> type of things. Like, you know, from the, um, uh, training environment and also the salter violence, the land confiscations, preventing Palestinians to go uh, to grazing or plowing or working their land. This is all come together as a complex and pushing the Palestinian people to the edge. And the people, the people who live in area see seeing themselves, uh, uh, I mean, uh, smashed between this and this, between all these political games which going around and all this agreement which happened, you know, 30 years ago and nothing happened, just make it worse for the Palestinian people. Uh, the Palestinian, all the Palestinian people, they know they are living in an apartheid uh, system. They know that, everybody know that because it is uh, daily lifestyle today, the apartheid which going on here in the, in the West Bank in general. We saw a lot of barriers. We saw a lot of fences. Uh, this road for settlers, this road preventing for Palestinians. And that's it. The problem is uh, they want us to live with this status quo without change. That's it. I mean, this is make it worse for the Palestinian young generations to grow up, to grow in more generations in this status quo. It's really unbelievable here in the in the West Bank in general. Thanks. And Basil, is Basil, I think Basil is still with us. I don't see him on video. Um, yes, fantastic, Basil. So picking up on, on Eid's comments, and, and I'm, I'm struck by what he said at the end about the status quo. And I want to ask you to, to, you have a lot of direct interaction with settlers. Probably, probably more than more than a lot of people would ever understand. You have a lot of direct interaction, and you have a lot of direct interaction with them, where I think they probably convey to you what their views are about what they want the status quo to turn into, in terms of the Palestinian presence on the land, in terms of whether or not there is any respect for Palestinian rights as human beings, as landowners, as residents. And some of this is reflected in that article that I think we posted earlier from the settler leader. But I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on um, what the end game is for the settlers backed by Israeli policy when they're looking at the South Hebron Hills. Um, is it an end game of Palestinians living sort of squashed into tiny areas and passive, or is it an end game of erasure ultimately? You know, God willing, they all go away. And, and, 
again, looking at that term apartheid and, and how you feel that fits, because I mean, I know when I talk to, to people here in the United States about what's happening in the South Hebron Hills or in East Jerusalem, generally the response I get is, look, this is, there's rule of law. This is, there's a, everything is legal. What do you want? Um, and, and I think there's a, a, a profound misunderstanding of what using law to implement apartheid versus rule of law are. I, if you could talk about that, that would be terrific. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, all, all, all what we do here, it's, it's illegal and it's against law. When it's the, the law, it's the occupation law. When it's these laws that uh, we are not like, uh, we are violating them is a law by army. We are as a civilians, as Palestinians living uh, since decades under the Israeli military law. We're civilians and living under a military law. Uh, this is not all people understand it because not uh, all people who easy for them to say, ah, oh, Palestinians build illegal, so the army can't demolish it. Palestinians do illegal thing because never their home were demolished and never the army can just come into their home and uh, arrest someone from their family or take their cameras or take their laptops for documenting the violations of the occupation. In the end of the day, me personally, I said law and the law, I know that the law, it's a power. Uh, it's a power to, 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 con to, to control. Uh, and uh, yeah, life, I, I understand life need, need laws and uh, need people to respect the laws. But here, here we are under uh, apartheid and uh, to those people should understand that the settlements and outposts are, uh, they are the illegal for the international law, for the human rights law, uh, and their, their governments in the international community uh, since decades just keep sending uh, Israel uh, uh, condemnings and uh, statements about the violating of uh, the Palestinians' uh, rights and the Palestinian human rights. And they uh, they always saying that they respect a uh, two-state solution. But the, the law that the army uh, damaging our homes within it and our roads and our schools and allowing the expanding of the settlements and outposts is the law that creating the facts on the ground and the law that kicking us as a Palestinians out of our land, as the, and as you said, as you mentioned before, that we are building, for example, our homes and our private land. And when a, a person can't build a home or a school for himself or for him, his community can't build this building in his private land where he can build it and where he can establish this thing if he's not allowing to do it in his own private land. Uh, uh, where can that happen? And it's very clear for us here. Uh, I, you, you said that yeah, I meet like settlers many times, but uh, the settlers all I, I, I saw and I interact with them. They're just uh, extremists and they just know how to use violence. And uh, always they're back to soldiers. And in in different accidents, especially here in Khabat Ma'on, uh, soldiers who try to not back the settlers and try to prevent them. The settler, the soldiers themselves were attacked by the settlers. Uh, you know, the, the settlers for me as a Palestinian, as an activist on the ground, they are part of this, the policy of the state. Uh, the policy of the state here in, in, in South Hebron Hills 
and all area C, it's very clear by uh, as much as they can kick Palestinians and uh, Palestinians from this land and as much as they can, the annexing of the land to the settlements and like to, to turn it to a Jews land, uh, take, it out, take it away from us. That's very clear. Uh, by all the things and the reports you can see in Betselem, the media that we are publishing, the things we are speaking tonight, demolishings, uh, our homes and our uh, water pipes, our roads, and within the settlers like attacks and expansions and farms, the videos that you hear, it's very clear to squeeze us and to make our life uh, hard and uh, like hard as they can uh, by making pressure. And Reid mentioned very important point. This like for, for me as, as a Palestinian witnessing this day by day, it is the Nakba that's still going on, but with different technique from uh, going and killing people and demolishing their homes and evacuate them uh, by forest. Uh, it's, they're doing it, but by law. Uh, the, which is the law that legitimizes these settlers and this uh, colonizing and uh, this like uh, army controlling on on us. Uh, in the end of the day, yes, all the things that we are we are explaining uh, has one goal, which is to kick us as Palestinians living in Area C, where we are we are few Palestinians uh, with more lands like. Uh, to, to, toward area A, which is the big Palestinian cities with uh, so many people. So the land here can be uh, annexed uh, to, to, to Israel or to be like uh, Israeli settlements. In the end of the day, yeah, all the policy, all the things that we are passed on through the day, through the night has, uh, and within like the army demolishing, the settlers, I like, it, it has one goal, like you ask many, like different time, uh, sorry, many time about what is the relationship between the army and the settlers. Very clear when soldiers come demolish our homes, uh, raiding our uh, homes in the night, demolishing schools, preventing us to have life requirement. And the, uh, in the other hand, they are allowed to happen in the outposts, even it is like illegal for the Israeli law. I never saw a demolition happening in uh, and in in Israeli outpost, so it's very clear apartheid situation and has one goal, uh, and the, the the leaders of it is the Israeli army, Israeli settlers, Israeli police, within totally silence by the international community, which is I mentioned before, just keep condemning statements while facts are created on the ground by only. Uh, the power and the power of the law and the law of the occupation. Thanks. And that's, there's so much to unpack there. I, I want to actually ask you a follow-up question. And, and we've talked about this before. You're a human rights defender. You've witnessed and recorded and, and published for people to see um, really just um, incredibly powerful videos uh, documenting what's actually happening, the human rights abuses, including against you, including, uh, including the, the pogrom in Mufagara last October. And I think my colleague put into the chat box, you, you very graciously did a, a podcast with us about that at the time, uh, what you experienced, and you've been personally targeted uh, by the military for your, for your journalism, for your activism. And I wanted to ask you, one of the things that Eid mentioned was this escalation, the idea that there's an escalation in the pressure, an escalation in the settlers' active, uh, threats, an escalation in the tactics on the ground. 
Um, can you talk about what you're seeing in, in terms of an, an arc of activity and escalation and, and why you think this is happening now and what, where you think it leads? You're, you're muted still, Basil. You're muted. You're muted. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, the, the thing, uh, the the thing we're like witnessed uh, within like Corona pandemic. It's very clear when uh, uh, international activists uh, were away from here, and we see that the the like I think the the world were busy with another thing, which is uh, Corona and the pandemic and find out solutions. Uh, we all witnessed that uh, demolitions of Palestinian homes in Area C. Uh, were in increased in very crazy way. Uh, it is like 120% increased, I think. Uh, uh, and settlers attacks also. And uh, like in the end, they, they were using the time of like, uh, they were using the time that the world is busy with Corona and the pandemic, so they can do whatever they want. They're using the the the, the time that not much uh, people focusing within within the situation here, and uh, especially with uh, last year 2021, starting with this new uh, idea of uh, uh, of farms, like uh, settlers are building farms. There are like 30 new farm uh, across West Bank. Uh, at least five of them here. Uh, in South Hebron Hills area. I saw a video of one settler talking that uh, uh, in the 80s, they, they built the settlements and then by the, during the second father, they connect each settlement with an outpost. And now the idea is to uh, connect each outpost with a farm. And actually the farm's policy is like some of the farms are taking uh, more land uh, that, than the settlement itself. And this is like for them, for the settlers, they're saying it's a more and much way successful than the settlements because it's less building, less money, less settlers coming to live in it. It's enough for each farm to have 3,000 dunums uh, preventing five Palestinian communities from create, uh, from grazing and cultivate the, the land there. Uh, just enough like five, to seven settlers with uh, two flocks of sheep with their like uh, motorcycles and drones and dogs and guns, like terrorizing any shepherd will come around that area, terrorizing the people as we as we see to claim that the people are uh, stealing their sheep or they lost the sheep while they were grazing. So to bring like a heavy uh, forces of, of soldiers and to go inside the homes and inside Palestinian sheep shelters to look for the for their sheep. So now it's like th this new idea and policy of farms is really uh, affected much. Aid uh, mentioned before, uh, and I am again saying it. It's very new policy and very dangerous. And uh, the videos you watch, it it was about it. Uh, and settlers themselves are saying it's more successful than the settlements that Israel start with it now. What they are doing. And for me, this kind of projects that they are doing by farms, for example, here next to Ma'on, they established uh, a, like uh, a field of vineyard. I think this this project cost millions of shekels, and that means in the in the past in the past uh, years they were like planning this new policy. It's not just something come up in their mind and they are doing it. It's a policy that they discuss it and they plan it. 
with the big organizations and within the uh, Syrian administration with the army to take uh, over the state land to legitimize settlers taking this land and to, to, to build the, their farms and to plant them and to connect them with water and electricity and to build sh uh, shelters and caravans and homes uh, in this like uh, thousands of dunums. So it is like, uh, they, they, they are like, as I said, they are like catching the power and time to time they, they use when they want to increase. But mostly it was a long like uh, process of planning these projects like with money, with the, how they want to take the land uh, and how to organize it well with the, with the army. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, I think they used the opportunity of Corona that people are, uh, you know, busy with the pandemic so they, they 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 used it thank you so much for that answer um so we have 15 minutes left for a final final round and i want to come back to to Bitsalem, and i'm going to just you know point this at both three and ayah whichever you want to answer um you know Bitsalem's report ends with a real a real punch in the face um and it says with regards to settler violence as a mechanism for land takeover it says quote the settlers are not defying the state they are doing its bidding so you know, look there there seems to be growing attention to settler violence uh there seems to be less attention to the connection between settler violence and the benefits that it, that, that it brings to the state and the connection responsibility of the state so can you articulate why Bitsalem feels this connection is so important to make and what you see happening in the international community with regards to recognizing and inter internalizing this state of affairs? Um, and, and do you think the growing normalization, if not acceptance, of the apartheid framework in at least the global human rights organizations world um, is a key step um, to people understanding and holding Israel accountable? For these for these these activities, and either one of you can answer that one. But so one of you must. Begin. I let Ayal start, and then I'll continue. I think most of the Israeli political map supports the annexation of the West Bank. It's not a question of if Israel would annex the West Bank. It's the questions of when and how to do it. That was the situation about one year and a half. And this situation is affecting on reflects on how the army and how the settlers are acting upon it. They see it as part of Israel already and everything is legitimate in order to achieve this goal. And when the prime minister does it and when all the, almost all the political parties support it. And when you see that the government and uh, the Israeli courts doesn't do anything about the illegal, what Israel calls, still calls illegal outposts for decades. Why should the simple uh, soldiers should do anything about it? And I heard a podcast two weeks ago with Nitzan Alon, who was the commander of the Israeli forces in the West Bank in, in left army about a few years ago. And he said that if he wanted to act against settler violence, he knew that he, was, he had very few incentives to do so. He would encounter many obstacles from the political parties. He would, wouldn't get any support to do so. So that is the situation here for many decades. There's no incentive to do anything about settler violence. 
not by the Israeli official bodies and not by, by the international community. Sorry? So maybe a cup where we all ended. Um, I think, first of all, clearly, you know, Israel incentivizes violence because it's very effective. It's an excellent tool to remove uh, poor, disenfranchised and completely powerless people from their land uh, in order to take it over. So it's it's uh, getting all the incentivization and no disincentives because there's no law enforcement. But I also want to talk about why we should not focus on law enforcement as this kind of like demand. And this is also, I think, very important from the international community perspective, because what we hear again and again from, for example, Under Secretary Nolan, that's just an example in her meeting with Israeli Minister of Interior Security, Omer Barlev, is this discussion of settler violence and, and kind of like a, with, a, with a stress on uh, on uh, arrests and uh, and you know kind of like criminal accountability etc i think that when the international community focuses on this part of the picture so on just kind of like arresting and bringing to trial those responsible which of course is important etc but not focusing on the deep state involvement in funding in incentivizing in making it all so worthwhile and funding, you know, and I think the funding is really the smoking gun in this whole issue, right? It's the deeply, broadly documented state support for these uh, um, uh, outposts. Um, then the international community is only going to be having a conversation about whether the police catches or doesn't catch these uh, rampaging uh, uh, bullies instead of how a systemic process has been going on for decades uh, that aims to be it you know through um, open uh, action through legal so legalistic I should call it processes or through actually overt violence take over land so I think this is really important for us all to remember another maybe point about the agricultural outposts which is I think um, the people are people need to pay attention to this phenomenon, right? Uh, and especially in the kind of policy circles in, in the United States and in, internationally, because I think, I mean, I don't want to be an alarmist, but this development is really a quantum leap in terms of the ability of Israeli settlers to push Palestinians off of such vast land tracts throughout the West Bank that some of the communities that we uh, work with are on the brink of collapse, right? People, I mean, I'm not even talking about the absolute utter suffering, daily suffering that people in much, much broader circles, right, areas are exposed to as a result of the expansion of these agricultural outposts. But um, the kind of like uh, the economic deterioration and decline that people are dealing with, people who in the past were able to actually subsist and sometimes even thrive on herding and on agriculture, are just having to deal with ongoing kind of like a, 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 a shrinking of their space, right? They're, you know, as we heard in one of the videos, they're not even able to leave the kind of like the built up area of the community because they'll just have to face so much violence. So I think this is something that not enough people are aware of or are paying attention to, that this is a real threat uh, to so many people and also to the existence of uh, uh, Palestinian uh, uh, farming and herding communities in space, in these spaces, not just in the Southern Hebron Hills, as I said. The Jordan Valley is the, 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 the most intense uh, kind of like uh, example of this dynamic as well. Um, and I think when we think about 
these these um, these issues, there really needs to be uh, um, a concerted international effort, not just to demand that Israel enforces the law, but to demand that Israel ends these apartheid uh, practices and ends uh, uh, the the state support for uh, these certainly for these uh, agricultural uh, uh, outposts. This has to be the international demand. We cannot constantly be just kind of involved in uh, these kind of cops and robbers scenarios. So this, I think, for us would be uh, the essential messages uh, that we would like to convey to Canada, the policy crowd. Thanks. And, and when you talk about the, the, the erasure of these communities, I want to remind people of the quote earlier from the head of the settler um, organizational body for the South Hebron Hills, who talked about taking apart communities as, as being a clear objective. Um, so this isn't, it's not attributing intent um, falsely to suggest that that is actually the goal of the policies. Um, Eid and Basil, I want to, we, we need to wind this up and I want to give you um, one more chance. And and so these are your last remarks, uh, which you can use however you wish. I think this would be a really great opportunity for you to talk about what you see the challenges are going forward and, and how, you, how you see the international community's role in supporting you, in bringing awareness to what is happening, um, in, 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 in preventing the erasure of your communities um, going forward. Um, Eid, why don't you start and then we'll end with Basil. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we hope that the international community will constrain and what happening in the West Bank uh, in general, uh, especially in Area C, because the Israeli point of view just to clear more land from Area C from Palestinian and then uh, kick them away to Area A, which the majority of the Palestinian people. If the international community did nothing long these years, we hope so after the, you know, the Amnesty International report that Maybe it will raise awareness a bit about what happened here. And maybe it's bring back the attention from the international community to the, to the West Bank uh, and what happening inside the, uh, the 67, uh, 67 uh, borders. Because it's really, long these two years of, of pandemic, it's a bit for, uh, forgotten a bit by the international community. And we hope so that it's a bring it back forward because me, I think uh, when I look to the future, I think it's, we will have a lot of difficulties in the future uh, as we go on deeply in the years because we saw Israel making this status quo and nothing pushed from outside uh, real to make change here. Not in a political uh, side, not in in, uh, in a sanction side, nothing. It's just going on with the subtler, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, story and work and the support for settlements is coming from different, you know, uh, uh, you know, countries from the world, and we we feel it on the ground. After all these agreements between Israel and the Arab countries, we saw a lot of. Uh, you know, kind of cooperation between Israel and these countries. And we've, we feel that most of these projects funded by, I don't know, by money come from abroad, which a lot of money. That's how come you make these projects, I mean, in one year for 
different settler settlements in the, in the meantime. Let's say it all. And we hope so the international community and the, the this, I mean, the countries who have the, the power to push Israel and back and look to the reality what happening in the ground. This is uh, which make change. Otherwise, it's nothing. It will be in the same, you know, situation. Thank you, Ian. And, and we've had a couple of questions come up and, and you, it's been raised in the conversation, this question of financing. And I think we should maybe organize a separate webinar just to talk about the way the Israeli government and funding coming from abroad is directly engaged in financing um, settlers and outposts and all of that. So folks on the call, heads up, there will be a webinar in the future. Uh, we'll look to schedule that. Basil, I, I wanna give you the last word. I, I, I look to you often for guidance on what is most important that we should be, we should be paying attention to. Um, and, and for a broad audience, I think this webinar will probably be listened to by people all over the world. I think this would be a really great opportunity for you to, to point people at what they should be paying attention to and where they maybe can get engaged. Uh, yeah, uh, so there's a lot of things the international community should do about, uh, about this issue here on the ground. Uh, but I see it's more like, uh, especially diplomats and governments, they, are, they, they choose if they want to do or they don't want to do. Uh, I hope they, uh, they, 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 they're going to do serious steps uh, against the occupation, against the apartheid uh, to, in, to, to, to end it. Uh, other people like... Uh, yeah, the people abroad should should be aware of what's going on here. Should should like uh, listen to the right media and write the uh, the right uh, and read the right reports uh, that going and written from here, and uh, be involved and stands uh, for our rights. We need their help. Uh, we need them to to protest. We need them to uh, stop paying uh, their texts and their money. To go to the to the Israeli soldiers, to the Israeli uh, weapons, to the Israeli right wing organizations, whose uh, their work and they are like uh, they are busy in just damaging our our life, <clears throat> our homes, our and uh, taking of over our lands. And I want to thank you for organizing this and thank the people who come to listen to us. Thank you, and and you know as we wrap this up. I wanna say that for folks who are looking to understand what's happening, the most important thing you can be doing right now is paying attention to the voices on the ground and particularly Palestinian voices who for far too long have not been centered in this conversation about what's happening to their lives. Um, I know if you look in the chat, you should have seen um, the Twitter link for Basil. He also writes uh, often, including at 972. You should be following our friends at B'Tselem. There are other activists active in the South Hebron Hills. Um, you can find these. If you start with Basil and start searching, you could, they'll, you'll connect the dots between B'Tselem and Basil to an entire world of activists on the ground doing incredible and courageous work, um, trying to non-violently support the basic and, and human rights and civil rights of Palestinians on the ground. So I would encourage people to take the time. Um, the more you know, um, the, the more you are empowered to, to, to speak up and to, to try to make change. 
Um, we are running out of time. I want to thank all of our panelists, Basil, Eid, Sarit, Eyal, for taking so much of your valuable time to be with us today. I want to thank everyone who joined us um, for the video version of this event or who's listening to it now online or um, downloading it. We're very glad to share this conversation with you. Please check back at our website, www.fmep.org, for a list of the various resources that we shared during this webinar. Um, lots of fantastic links, and we'll be adding to that um, if there's more that we find. And thanks especially to people who asked questions. We, we worked as many of those as we could into the conversation. And with that, it is 1.29. I am finishing 30 seconds early. I want everyone to note that. Um, we are so grateful for your time and, and for your work, and, and thank you for being with us today. So until the next time, Laura Friedman, the Foundation much. for Middle East Peace. Good thank night. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Take care. Bye.